We're going to look at six chapters in 1 Samuel, and then we're going to land in a psalm or a song written by David, and it's Psalm 57. But we, it's really great to get the backstory um, so that you can really appreciate the song. So you, got, you guys tracking with me? Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 18. Everybody turned there except for me. 1 Samuel chapter 18, um, and we'll just kind of work through this. So 1 Samuel chapter 18 we're going to look at verse 20 and uh, go to verse 29, and then I'll just run through this. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Okay, so if you're just now dropping into the story, we're looking at uh, the life of this man named David, and David has been anointed as king, but he's not yet realized that position because Saul is the current king, and Saul is not very excited about giving up his throne to David. David's best friend in the whole world is Saul's son, Jonathan. So you should read your Bible, really great stories in there. And now... Saul is trying to um, hook up David with his daughter, Michael. David's actually already married uh, to one of Saul's daughters, and now Saul's trying to use this relationship with his daughter, Michael, to kind of push David out, ultimately. We're going to see that. Look at verse 20. That's why, that's why Saul's pleased with that. Verse 21, he says, I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she might be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. So remember, he's already married to one of Saul's daughters. Saul's kind of like his enemy, um, and, and now he's already married to one of his uh, enemies slash father-in-law's daughters. Now he's going to get a second uh, daughter. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. And they repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. So in that day, if you would want to, uh, to marry a, a, a man's daughter, you'd have to come up with some type of offering. You'd have to have come up with some kind of like dowry or present that you'd give to the father in exchange for his daughter. You'd essentially have to give him money or something of value so that you could have his daughter. And David's like, I, I have nothing. I'm a shepherd boy. I play guitar on the side. I've got like, I've, I got nothing. Um, but when Saul's servants told him what David said, so the servants go back to Saul and they say, look, David does have a good point. He doesn't have any money. So, you know, what, how could that happen? Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins, at which David's like, all right, I'll find some money somewhere. No, just kidding. He says, I want, I, I want a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. And then they counted out the full number to the king. So like one, two, yuck, three. <laughs> you know, could you imagine? Uh, the, this, here's the thing, like, this really happened. <laughs> so it's just nuts. <laughs> bad, bad choice. <laughs> uh, I, I really am in sixth grade. <laughs> All right, so he brought back, he brought back 
200. So, so he asked for 100. He brought back 200. Brought him back. Counted him out in front of the king. And then, and then Saul's like, that's really impressive and gross. And so he gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. And when Saul realized that the, realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. So Saul intended to trap, Dave, to trap David with this relationship with Michael. And the reason that he intended to do that is because Michael um, worshipped idols, so, so he knew David worships the one true God, who is Yahweh, and his daughter Michael worships idols. And so he thought, okay, David loves this woman who doesn't love his God. Perhaps she can be a bad influence on him. Perhaps she can turn him. And so then God will then be against David. Um, and, or, you know, maybe that would undo David's. Or I'll just send David into battle. I'll send him into this really crazy battle against the Philistines, and maybe he'll die in battle. So, so Saul's kind of trying to work all these angles to get rid of, of David. But David goes above and beyond the requirements for the hand for, of Saul's um, daughter in marriage. And then Saul's like, okay, I was afraid of David before. I was intimidated. I was threatened by David before. But now, now I'm really now I'm really afraid of who David is. So go to chapter 19. Um, Saul, at this time, he's got a plan to kill David. Um, Jonathan, who is David's best friend, Saul's son, talks him out of it. He warns David, and David continues to go to war against the Philistines and continues to have a success. And we go down to verse 9 in chapter 19. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. Saul's tried this before, mind you. And, and tried to, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good on his escape. He said, you know what? Enough is enough. Verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him. He said, look, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol, so remember, idol worshiper, and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. So this is where Ferris Bueller got the, the idea. Um, and when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he's ill. He's not feeling very well. He has goat hair. Doesn't feel good. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told him, bring him up to me in his bed so that I, so that I may kill him. So Saul is just not having it. I mean, Saul's furious. They, they, they go said, hey, David, he, you know, he's ill, can't come to the door. And so Saul's like, pick up his bed and carry him here. I'll kill him myself. Um, and, and so then, but when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and the head was some goat's hair. So Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? And Michael said, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? So Michael is just like, no, he was going to kill me if I didn't let him go. So Michael lied, like a, lied about it. Um, so when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel. So remember, Samuel is the prophet who anointed David as king at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Okay, so Saul, still bent on killing David with the spear, he tries to get his son Jonathan to help him. But Jonathan and Michael, who are Saul's children, they help David escape death. And the, and the way that this story is told is very important because it's meant to stress the claim that David did not usurp the throne from Saul. This was not a hostile takeover by David. 
So David finally flees. He says, this is just too much. It's too dangerous for me. He finally flees. He's on the run. He travels about three miles away to this place called Ramah. And there he meets up with, again with that prophet Samuel. And they tra- travel to this place called Naoth. And, and a lot of scholars say that this was kind of like this religious compound, like this religious like enclave. So that's where he is. So Saul finds out that he's there. And he sends men, he sends this group of men to capture David. But, and this is really cool, but they are intercepted by the Spirit of God. So finally, Saul himself takes off to find David, and he is too overwhelmed by the Spirit of God to the point that you've got to read your Bible. We're not going to read this right now. But, but he's so overwhelmed with the Spirit of God that he actually gets naked on the road and ends up before the prophet Samuel, like, just being, like, uttering kind of prophecy and kind of naked and just crazy, right? Okay, so then, then we get into chapter 20. So David is pretty certain right now that Saul is nuts and wants to kill him. But he doesn't want to leave the people that he loves, namely his wife, Michael, and his best friend, Jonathan. Um, so David wants to make sure that it's not his fault that Saul is after him. So he has this conversation with Jonathan. Jonathan said, it's not your fault. Um, and he offers to help him again. So Jonathan does help David because um, he, he tells him again of Saul's intent to kill him. And it's in this kind of really cool scene. you got to read chapter 20 that David kind of constructs in the field. It, it basically kind of puts the scene together so that David can be sure it's not your fault that Saul wants to kill you. Saul just wants to kill you because he's like insanely jealous of who you are. And then they realize that this situation is just all bad. And, and David and Jonathan, we talked about their friendship the last time we were together. They actually have this really... I think this really cool moment, and it's kind of like, you know, if this was a movie, this would this would be a very cinematic scene. It's this time where these two guys, they just, they love each other, they're best friends, and they just realize this is an impossible friendship. This is an impossible friendship. Um, and in and, and verse kind of 41, we see how it essentially ends, like how they, how they like the last time they kind of are together. Um, verse 41, after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back to town. And and we are going to see, as we kind of get further into David's story, just how significant that moment is and the ripple effect that that has literally through generations um, through through the life of both David and Jonathan. So now we get into chapter 21. So David's on the run and he gets assistance um, in in the way of showbread or holy bread and Goliath's sword. And, and, there, and I'll just read the scene. So look at verse 21. Um, look at verse, um, let's start in, in verse... Uh, five. So David replied, okay, they basically, they, they run into um, Ahimelech the priest, and they are starving because they're on the run, and they go into the, the, the this kind of like temple, and, and they say, look, do you have anything to eat? And um, the priest says, well, we have this consecrated bread, which is this kind of like set-aside bread, like the show bread, um, but the only people who can eat it are people who that you you've abstained from, um, you know, being with women. You haven't been women. And then that, if, the, if that's the case, then, and David's like, look, man, we've just been on the run. We're not. In fact, he, David tells him a lie. He's like, no, we're on a mission from the king. So, of course, we're pure because we're on a mission from the king. Um, 
And so in verse 5, he says, Indeed, women have been kept for us as usual whenever I'm sent out. He's like, the, the men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now, one of Saul's servants, this is important, one of Saul's servants was there that day detained before the Lord, and he was Doug the Edomite. Um, Saul's chief shepherd. And David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. David is a really lousy liar. And you're going to see that later in his life as well too. So he's like, hey, you know, the king sent us on this message, uh, this mi mission and we just had to get out of there so fast that like we didn't have any time to eat. So do you have anything to eat? And the guy's like, okay, yeah, that's odd. I got this special bread. No one's supposed to eat, but you know, I guess here you can eat it. And he's like, oh, by the way, we actually we were in such a hurry that we didn't bring any weapons. And the priest replied, okay, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Ella, 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 is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here like that one. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. So it's really kind of like, it's, it's evidently shady, the whole thing. It doesn't really make any sense. You know, okay, you left on this really secret special mission, and you didn't take a weapon at all. And, like, all of you, like, there's a whole group of you. No one brought anything. And so, so he takes Goliath's sword, um, whom he, he killed. Um, get into chapter 22. Um, look at verse 1 and 2. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Um, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. So they, David kind of is on the run. He's escaping from place to place. So he's a, he's a wanted man. Um, you know, he's just trying to, to survive at this point. Um, so he goes to this cave at Adullam. And all those, verse 2, chapter 22, verse 2, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. It sounds like 710. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So what I love about this is that David, he really does, he has like kind of like the outcast, like the, the least of these, the last of these, those are the ones who are with him. But we're going to see as the story progresses that, that some of these, some of these 400 that are with him, they actually become his mighty men. So if you don't know the story of David, it's really great. He's got like this SWAT team, like SEAL Team 6 of valiant warriors. He has these mighty men that are with him. Are really, it's really, really cool. Um, so they are in this place, this place of Adullam, this, this, this cave. Look at verse 13. Um, and so Saul is pursuing him. He actually hears that David um, got help from that priest, Ahimelech. For remember, so remember Doug, the Edomite? Doug's kind of like a, he's a, he was there, he was standing there, and he's like, hey, look, this priest helped out David. Um, and so Saul finds out about it, and he says, he goes to this priest, he says, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God of him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? And Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal to David, as, as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. So Saul rolls in, and he's like, look, I heard from Doug the, the Edomite that you helped out David, who is my sworn enemy. And Ahimelech the priest is like, wait, wait, David? Like the Dave, David who you know, played the songs for you, David who won battles for you, David who was in charge of your army, like that David? Like 
that David's great. What in the world is going on? He's like, I literally have no idea what's happening here. And Saul's like, you helped out my mortal enemy. Um, but the king, in verse 16, the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Now, here's this kind of a sidecar thing. So David goes, runs, and lies to this priest. And the consequences of his lie cost Ahimelech and his family their lives. And it's not the first time that one of David's lies will cost somebody their life. And then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, Doug, we'll call him, I call him, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doug the Edomite turned and strike them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, its sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Etah, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. And he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doug the Edomite was there, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. So just look at how out of control this story has gotten. Saul, in his rage and in his jealousy, is pursuing David and just breaking every law. David, um, because of his fear, is running and telling lies and it turns into this absolute massacre. So this place, Nob, where Ahimelech was, is kind of like this community of priests, or like religious men and their families. And this guy, Doug the, the Edomite, Edomite, because he wants, to, he wants the favor of the king, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get the favor of the king. Kills 85 priests and kids, their wives, and the cattle, and the sheep, and the donkeys. So it's an absolute mess. In chapter 23, David gets word that the Philistines are attacking a nearby city. God says to him, look, I want you to go save those people. So he does. Um, and look at verse 14 there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in a desert, uh, desert of Ziph. Um, day after day, Saul searched for him, but did not give David into his hand. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Do not be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home. David remained at Horesh. So, again, they're in pursuit. Um, they're going, and then finally we get to chapter 24, and, and this is kind of where we're end in the flyover. So David on the run, Saul pursuing. Chapter 24, let, listen to this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself which is exactly what it sounds like. David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, this is the day that the Lord has made for you, man. This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed 
and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. So all of his boys were like, Ah, oh, we have been running and running and running and hiding in caves and eating consecrated bread and you're the only one with a sword man and we're just going from place to place to place and finally finally our enemy is right there in a super awkward and vulnerable position go get him david who's just master valiant warrior sneaks up on him ready to strike could take his life this whole thing could be over with and instead of killing him he just cuts a corner of his robe, and, he's, and he says, who am I? Who am I to do such a thing? To, to move against the Lord and to move against the Lord's anointed. And he said, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went away. And then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you. This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Why are you pursuing a dead dog, a flea? David says, who am I that you would waste all these resources, all, these, all this time, all, the, all these men, money, all these, all these men, all, the, all, this, all this effort towards me? Who am I? I'm like a shepherd, singer-songwriter guy. Like, who am I? Um, and then against, he says, verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider me, my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well today for the way that you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so David gave his oath to Saul, and then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So really, really incredible story. Now, somewhere between chapter 22 and chapter 24, 1 Samuel, David writes this song, the Psalm 57. So if you have a Bible, turn over to Psalm 57. And that kind of, what, everything we just kind of briefly flew over there, that kind of sets the backstory for what we're going to look at real quick in this song. And I just want to kind of work through it and break it down and see what it is that we can learn from David's experience and also from how he essentially sings about this experience. So Psalm 57, um, and it's set to the tune of Do Not Destroy, which is a very popular Hebrew metal song. Um, <laughs> Psalm 57, look at verse 1. And I'm going to give you 
a few principles. I think there's like four or five principles that we're going to learn out of this. So if you take notes, they're, they're really easy to take. Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. The first thing that we learn from David's experience in this psalm is that God's presence is the place of my protection. God's presence is the place of my protection. Where God is, that is the place of my protection. David hides in a cave during this song. But in verse 1, he says, I take refuge in God. The place of my refuge is in you, God, in the shadow of the wings of God. He hid in the presence of God. When disaster is happening in your life, hide yourself in the presence of God. I've got three young kids, eight, six, and four, and they like to play hide and seek. Um, And it's a lot of fun for me because they're terrible at it. Like, you know, they'll hide in a place, like in a closet, you know, but like every time I come close, they always giggle. So I know right where they are. Or they like hide under a bed with like their feet hanging out, you know, like Wizard of Oz style. And so you just kind of know like where they are. And it's a a lot of fun for them. Um, When when I was a kid, when I'd go to like department stores and stuff with my mom, I always like to hide in those big circle like clothing racks. I don't even know if they still have those. So I would go in there, and I would, I would just, like, camp in there and hide. Hopefully you're not still doing that. That's what you seemed really excited, but <laughs> please, please don't do that. Um, but when I was a kid, I'd go in there, and I'd, and I'd hide. And I just thought that was, like, just super fun. It's like I had, like, a fort, you know? Well, one time, uh, my mom couldn't find me. And I don't know if it was, like, to teach me a lesson or if she just was, like, over it. But I got left at the store. Uh, and I remember kind of coming out and... Like, I was, like, kind of freaking out, you know. Uh, like, Mom, you know, Mom, where are you, Mom? And I'm, like, running around, and, you know, like, you, you and your kid, you, like, run up to other people who, like, look like they could be your mom, but it's, like, not really your mom, and that's, like, super weird, too, um, you know. But, but I just, I, I remember that, that moment. And so to kids, like, hiding is not that big of a deal if you know that someone's going to find you. Like, hiding's fun if you know that someone who loves you is looking for you. Hiding is really scary um, when you're all alone. And that's where, that's where David is now. And I think like God kept and preserved David because David trusted in and really longed for the presence of God. And we're going to see David do some really stupid and destructive things. But the thing that's consistent about David is that he really longs for the presence of God. Like above all else, he desires that. David has strong desires and misplaced desires. But he has this really strong desire for the presence of God. We see that David, he's, he's been anointed as king, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. It looks like he's going to get killed before he gets his opportunity. But he says, Lord, I'm hidden in you, and I know that outside of your authority, no one can touch me. He says, God, I know that if anything happens to me, it's because you allowed it or you ordained it. I trust you. We need to learn, like David, to desire the presence of God in the darkest times of our lives. So God's presence is the place of my protection. The second thing that we learn is that God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance. God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance. God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Um, there are so many times in life where the purposes of God can seem really vague, really obscure, hard.
hard to grasp, hard to understand, hard to even see. Sometimes there's things that happen in our lives that don't seem to line up with what we think God really intends. Like somehow there has been like a glitch in God's sovereignty. Like maybe God was like asleep for a minute and something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, like, like, like somehow God became unaware for a moment or like his ability failed for a moment. I mean, you've got David here. He's running from this homicidal king. David has 400 guys with him, and they're like the least of the least. Saul has thousands. Saul has all these professionally trained military soldier warrior guys with him. And David's got like a bunch of dudes who are like, hey, can you just please try to kill him while he's like going to the bathroom because we want to go home. But David writes this. He says, I cry out to God most high who fulfills his purpose for me. If you have a King James Version, it says, who performs all things for me. I love that translation. I cry out to God, who performs all things for me, who performs on my behalf and who rewards me. God fulfills his purpose in the life of his children. That's what David knows. It's not always difficult for us to, to mentally ascend to that, it's not always difficult for us to understand that, okay, God's working on my behalf, but it can be hard sometimes for us to keep believing that. Like, it, we can say it, like, okay, God's, God's working all things out for my good, my greatest good. We can say it, but for us to really believe it and to really live out of that is not always very easy. And it could be in your life that you just feel like God's timing is way off. Like if he was going to do the thing that you felt like he should do or that like he was going to do, that it should have happened by now. And Psalm 57 too says, God is the God who fulfills his purpose even for you. It, it, the, the Hebrew word there is this word gemar. It means to bring something to an end or complete it. In other places in the scripture, it says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's, that's the God that David knows about. That's the God that David is crying out to. That if God who started something in my life, he's going to be faithful to finish it. Here's the key. David says God will finish his purpose, not my purpose. That's a big difference. David does not say, I cry out to God who's going to work out my plan for me. No, he says, I cry out to God who's working his plan in my life. And that's why so many of us miss it or we get lost in our attempt to follow Jesus because we don't make the distinction between his purpose or his desire in our lives and our desire for our lives. We think that it works like, okay, God, I'm just going to put my desire out there. I'm going to put my plan out there, and you just you do whatever you have to do. Use all your power. Use all your uh, wisdom. Use everything you got to make my plan happen for my life. It's the plan I came up with. It's the plan that I want. You make it work out for me. Because at this point, David is still not sure how this is going to end. God told him that he would be king, but God never told him how he's going to make it out of the cave. We, we see David has this opportunity to kind of fast forward this whole process and take matters into his own hands, but he doesn't do it because he was determined to do God's thing and to do it God's way. And here's a key, key element for us. If you want God's will in your life, and if you're a follower of Jesus, that would, that would be you. You would say, I want God's will. I want what God wants for me in my life. You have to do it God's way. If you want God's will to show up in your life, to be made known, to be manifest in your life, you have to do it God's way. If you want God's best for your life, you have to trust God's timing for your life. 
And I, and I know that's not easy. It's certainly not popular. And I know a lot of times it doesn't even make any sense. But his purpose is the promise or the assurance of your deliverance. His purpose for your life is the promise of your deliverance. All through the scriptures, when God promises to take people somewhere, whether it's to the promised land or across the stormy sea, he always sees to it. He always sees to it. In, in, in the Old Testament, God has this name, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. That's who he is. That's his name. And he's faithful to his name. And I know for some of you, you feel like God's given you a desire. And it's a, it's a good desire. It's a desire for something good. But he hasn't seemed to provide any way to make that happen. And so you are tempted to fulfill it yourself and to make it happen yourself. And, and you are like David. You're right there. You're like, I can see it. It's right in front of me. And I, if I just take this shortcut, and you even have people who, like David did in the cave, like, David, this is it. This is the opportunity. Clearly, this is it. You know in your heart of hearts, just like David knew in his heart of hearts, this is not, this is not what God wants. But you've got friends who are in your ear and like, no, no, do it. Do it. It's right there. It's right in front of you. Just take this shortcut. Take the shortcut in this relationship. You want a relationship. You want everything that comes with that. You want love. You want attention. You want affection. You want that. Just take the shortcut. So what? He's not like the right guy or the right gal. You want, you want a relationship. It's what you want. It's what God's put in front of you. Or, 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 or maybe it's in a job situation. Okay, you know, you have, to, you have to tell a little white lie. You have to cheat just a little bit. Everybody, nobody works the full time. Nobody works the full eight hours. Everybody is cutting off, or in class, or in school. There's always, always an opportunity, whatever it is. There's always an opportunity to take a shortcut, to cut the piece of Saul's robe. I mean, I mean Saul's sitting there. He's, it's, it's the perfect situation. David cuts his robe. And that's what sin ultimately is. It's trying to fulfill a God-given desire in a way that is dishonoring to God. Outside of his statutes, outside of the way that God has prescribed for you to live, you're trying to fulfill a God-given desire. So you have, you have a desire for a relationship. You have a desire for love, right? And so you pursue intimacy outside of marriage, right, as a shortcut to get those things. And then you have to deal with the consequences of those things. Pornography is a perfect example of this. You, you want all the things that are kind of presented in that, but you shortcut what God has designed for your sexuality. You want joy, you want pleasure, right? And God's like, I want those too. He says, in my hand are pleasures forevermore. But you go to other sources, so getting drunk or getting high or buying stuff or the attention of other people, whatever it is, like you're looking for kind of joy, like whatever that kind of, whatever that thing is that brings that moment of euphoria, that brings that momentary happiness, it's a good thing to desire joy. God hardwired you for that. But you shortcut God's desires when you find it in other lesser things. You want to have a career. You want to have a successful career. I believe that's a God-given desire. But you make an ethical compromise. The desire to advance, I think, is good. The desire to be successful, I think, is good. But you cut off the robe if you don't do it God's way. I remember when I, like, early on here, when I first started, um, this guy came in the office, and he was looking to talk to a pastor, and there must have been, like, some kind of national emergency, because I was the only one here, and so um, this poor guy had to come and sit in my office, and he was an older guy. I mean, he was, like, you know, like, almost 60, late 50s. His life was absolutely falling apart, and he has to sit and talk to me. 
um, which probably made it worse. And he, he I'll, I will never forget this meeting because he was saying, you know, I'm in insurance and um, I've built like this really amazing life, meaning he had a lot of stuff. He's like, but it's killing me from the inside out because I've been lying to people for years. And I've built up this life on all these lies to sell these products. We go on great vacations. We have a nice home. I drive a great car. You know, my, I, my, I buy my kids all kinds of stuff. He's like, but I feel like if I want to keep that life up, I have to keep lying. He's like, and it's just killing me. And I mean, I'm naive. I don't know. I was like, well, dude, just stop lying. <laughs> and he's like, I can't. And I was like, well, you have to. It's killing you. And he's like, yeah, I can't. I mean, and that guy left my office, like, just absolutely broken. I was little to no help to him. But, but he was absolutely broken. And, I, and, and that is, that's the thing. Like, we desire to have success or whatever it is. And, and like, I'm not saying, like, having nice stuff or going on nice vacations or any of that stuff. None of that stuff is wrong to have that stuff. But in his case, that stuff had him. And he couldn't break away from it. If you have a desire um, to get even with someone because they wronged you or they hurt you, some of you in this room, you're holding on to some kind of bitterness. You want some kind of vengeance. It is a God-given desire to seek justice. But you cut off Saul's robe when you take that into your own hands. If you try to do God's will your way, it'll never work out. If you want to see the deliverance of God, you have to submit yourself to the purposes of God. A, a lot of times what happens is we go and we do things our way. We get into trouble and we're like, God, save me, save me, save me. And in his grace and in his mercy, he will cover and he's forgiven in Christ. But if you want to experience and continually walk in freedom, you have to submit to God's purpose and know that God did not bring you this far just to leave you. Um, the third thing is God's performance is the assurance of my salvation. God's performance is the assurance of my salvation. Look at verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. If it was up to us to merit or to earn our own salvation, to earn a role in God's purpose, if we had to plead our own righteousness, if we had to earn God's love and acceptance, if we didn't have the sinless, perfect life of Christ and the cross of Christ where he died, then we shouldn't really even bother with getting together. And I probably should not bother with preaching any of this because I don't know about you, but I would have been done a long time ago. But thankfully and gloriously, we do have uh, this Savior, Jesus, who is not like us, who is from another reality that we did not create or contribute to, that's heaven. Um, and I thank God that we do have an advocate and a righteousness in him. And so we know uh, that his performance is the assurance of my salvation. Next, we see that God's greatness is the basis of my confidence. And this is the last one. God's greatness is the basis of my confidence. His performance is the assurance of my salvation, and his greatness is the basis of my confidence. Look at verse 4. My soul, David says, is in the midst of lions, and I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So David writes that because behind him, deeper in the cave, was a, was a den of lions, the pride of lions. So this adds just to the picture of what's happening here. So outside the cave, um, he says, outside the cave, he's like, the children of man, teeth are spears and arrows. 
there's literally spears and arrows outside the cave. If I go any further deeper in the cave, lions. So I'm really, really stuck. That's how David's like describing his situation. And I know for some of you, you feel like you've got some pretty tough things in your life. That kind of describes your situation. You're like, okay, if I go one direction, ravenous beasts, lions. If I go another way, uh, it's even worse. It's arrows and spears. I mean, David is about to lose his life. It's an extremely stressful situation. Look at verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Okay, what happened between verse 4 and verse 5? He seemed to have left something out there. Because he just says, okay, my soul's in the midst of lions, and I'm lying down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Death is all around me. But then verse 5 comes around and says, be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. His perspective changes from what's around him to who is above him. His perspective changes from what's around him in his life to who is above him in his life. He looks at his circumstances. He looks at what's around him. He says, this is not secure. This is a bad deal, what's around me. But God, who is the lifter of my head, the psalmist says, he causes me to see him. Like a cave full of lions doesn't really seem like the path you're going to be on if you're going to be king, unless maybe you're like your Simba, right? So this does not look like the envisioned future that David had. But all through the Bible, God takes his people through some pretty strange paths. I mean, how did the Savior of the world show up on the scene? Like the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the Redeemer. He, how does he show up in a backwater hillbilly town, the son of a construction worker and a pregnant teenager? And he goes his whole life does not recognized as king. In fact, there's only one time he's recognized as king. As king, And a few days later, he's stripped naked and beaten bloody and spit on and humiliated and tortured for you and for me. But now we know every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I don't know if you've ever been like in the car with somebody um, who, who's driving someplace and taking you like kind of all on, on these back roads and you're like, we are totally lost. My, my wife, she grew up in this little mountain town in North Georgia. And whenever I'd go visit her, you know, she'd drive me around. And there's all these windy, like, back roads and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, this is not the way to Bojangles. You know, I know it. It's like, but you think this is where we're going. So, and, and like, sure enough, we would kind of end up there. And I was always like, how did we get here? And I think a lot of times our experience with God can be like that. Like, we're kind of sitting there and we're like, we're watching and we're like, this seems like a way wrong turn. It seems like we should not have ended up in this spot. It seems like we are really far, God, from where we were going to go. It seems like we're right now, we're in a cave, and there's lions on one side, and there's spears and arrows on the other. This just does not seem right. But then you show up right where you're supposed to be. I love how David ends this psalm. Let me just read the last of it. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. Verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Verse 7, my heart is steadfast. Let me just speak this over you, because if you feel like I'm in a cave tonight, <laughs> David says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody 
Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love. Steadfast means not moving, not going anywhere, anchored, solid, always there. Nothing threatens it. Nothing changes it. Your steadfast love. Love. David says, my belovedness is not at risk. The way that you love me, God, is not threatened. It's not at risk. Have you ever been in a relationship where you just know, like, my belovedness is not at risk. It can't be lost. It won't change. No matter what I do, I am Beloved, I am loved, unconditionally loved. That's why David is able to write this song, because he says, your love for me is steadfast. It's great to the heavens. There is no ceiling on your love. There there is no container. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Without knowing the income outcome, without knowing how this was going to turn out, without knowing whether he would live or die, David has a decision to make. And you and I have a decision to make, not knowing the outcome of our lives. We all have plans. We all got hopes. We all got dreams. We all got, man, I, I wish this would or I hope this does. But we all have a decision to make, live or die, no matter what the outcome Will I choose God's glory? Because that is the decision that David makes, and that makes all the difference in the world in David's life. David says, I am going to choose God's glory. David urges himself to praise and to look forward, bringing the testimony of God's goodness beyond his present circumstance. We've talked this whole series about how David always pushes us further and forward to who? Jesus. Because Jesus, on the hardest, most difficult day of his life, we just celebrated this on Good Friday, trusted God. God, if there's any way this cup can pass, any way, but not my will, yours. God's will required Jesus to lay down his life so that he could bring us life. We're going we're gonna, to um, sing and close out our time together, and this is how we kind of normally end our time together. And I think it's really appropriate, especially tonight, because that's exactly what David does in the cave. David writes a song. And, and, and if you look in the little notes in my Bible, it says, to the choir master, which means like this was not just a song for David that David just kind of hummed to himself. This was a song for the people of God to sing when they were in a cave, when there looked like there was no way out. David saying, there is a way out. There is a way up. There is a way to freedom, and there is a way to, lo- to life, and it's through the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. So why do we sing when we get together? I mean, I don't know about you, how much you ever think about, like, church and church gatherings and what we all do together. There's a lot of times I think a lot of the stuff we do is really weird. I think the fact that you just sat through, like, 45 minutes of me talking is odd, right? The singing, to me, a lot of times, it can feel kind of weird. So why do we do it? Three reasons I'm going to give you. We sing as a reminder of who God is and what he has done and what he has promised. We need to sing because we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of who God is because all of us today, 
we all chased something lesser than God and made it like it was God. We, we've forgotten what God has done. We've forgotten who he really is. We've forgotten what he has done in our life. We need to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded of what's coming. We need to be reminded of, of this future glory that we have in him. Not a glory that we've earned, not a glory that we deserve, but by his grace, what he's promised to fulfill in our life. We need to be reminded of that. Second, we also need to sing as a prayer request of what we want to see in our lives and in our world. I know sometimes we sing things where, like, it feels a little bit disingenuous because it's not really happening in my life, you know? Like, uh, he's, n- he's not my all in all. He's not, like, everything, you know? We sing these things as a prayer request. And they're, they're words that have been written that resonate with our hearts and with our lives and with our souls. It's like, God, I want that. What I'm singing right now, I'm singing in faith, asking you to answer, asking you to make true in my life. I'm singing this as a prayer request. I'm using these words, making them my words. I'm singing um, because I want to see this show up in my own life. I want to see this show up in my own world. And then lastly, we sing as a testimony of truth to those that are without hope. This is not like a giant room, but there's enough people in the room who you came in here tonight and you really, you don't have hope. And and maybe you can kind of fake it and, and that's, you know, that's on you, whatever. You don't have to fake it here. I just want to free you up from that. But I know, I know there's at least one person in the room who'd say, as far as hope goes, I'm just completely bankrupt. And so we sing together as a community, as a testimony of truth to those that are without hope. We sing to remind ourselves. We sing because we want these things to show up in our lives and in, in, in our world. But we're also singing to encourage those who would come in and be like, I don't have a song. I don't have a song to sing. In Psalm 77, the psalmist says, God, give me a song in the night. You ever been just in the middle of the night and you're just like, I'm completely tapped out. I don't have anything. And the psalmist says, I want to, Job says the same thing. It's like, I want to remember in the night when it's the worst, when I can't sleep, I want that song. I want to remember that song. So we sing a song for those who don't have a song to sing. It's not in my heart. It's not in my mind can't come out of my lips. So we sing on their behalf and we sing for them. We're, we're going to sing this song and uh, it's, it's a newer song to us. It's a song that's been around, but it's a newer song to us. And it, ta- it, it has this phrase and I, I need to explain it so that you don't misunderstand it, but it talks about the reckless love of God. And you can look at that and you'd be like, reckless? Like God doesn't know what he's doing? It's just like, you know, like he's driving and there's no brakes? No, it, it's the same idea as, as, as prodigal. So the prodigal son if you know this story, he takes the inheritance and he's reckless with it. He goes and he spends and he spends it on booze and parties and women and he blows it all. He's, he's, he's totally reckless. But then the father is also reckless, who welcomes in the son. Because the father does the most undignified thing that you could do in that day and in that culture. He's, one, on the front porch the whole time, waiting for this son who's ruined everything to come home. And when he sees him, he doesn't, like, yell at him, like, don't you dare come down the driveway. I've been waiting for you. Who do you think you are? Like, you could do all that. You could wreck all that. You could make a joke of my name out there, and you think you're just going to come back. He does the exact opposite. He hikes up his robe, and he just tears down the driveway. And the scripture says he gives him the biggest embrace and he kisses his son and he brings him in and he says, take my robe, take my rings, take my best offering, take my lamb, 
take everything. Welcome home, son. It's prodigal. It's reckless. People look at that and they're like, that's foolishness. How do you know that son won't take advantage of you again? And he says, it doesn't matter. I just love him. I just love him no matter what. I love him. And I want him to know how much I love him. And he, he can't. He, he cannot outspend my love. He can't. And so we're, we're, we're going to sing a song, and I, I, honestly, I think it's just like the perfect song because that's what David was articulating in this psalm. And he said, he said God, I know what I know about you is that you are relentless in your love towards me. And for some of you, you need to sing this song because you need to be reminded of it tonight. Some of you need to sing this song because you want to see this show up in our world and in your own life. And some of you, you need to sing this song loud for the person next to you who can't bring themselves to sing this song. Let me pray. The band's going to come and they're going to lead us out. God, thank you for, um, God, I'm so thankful for your word. And, and God, it is a collection of true accounts and true stories. Um, but it is so much more than that. God, I, I, especially when we're looking at David and God, and especially in the Psalms, I'm so struck with how insanely relevant, God, your word is. God, because we've had these moments where we've been in the cave. And God, it's looked like there is no way out. And God, we've been tempted to take the shortcut. God, we've been tempted to take the easy way out. God, we've heard the voices of people close to us and next to us who just say, look, this is what you want. Take what you want. Do what you want. And God, we have fallen into that temptation. God, we've suffered the consequences of falling into the temptation. And God, there's some of us, even right now, like, God, we know we, we have to be faithful to what you've called us to be and live faithful how you've called us to live. So, um, God, I, I pray that in this next just little moment, God, as, as we open our voices and, and our, our open our lips, God, just to sing to you, that's that you would just send your spirit to minister to us. Um, God, I know that there's people in the room who uh, they want to be able to sing these songs with confident hearts, um, but God, they just can't. It's just too difficult. So God, would you help us even to, to sing the things that we want and need to sing? Uh, Jesus, we thank you for your steadfast love towards us. We saw it in your cross, God. We saw it in the power of your resurrection. God, we sing about it now. It's in your name we pray, amen.